Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 2023 B.C. Lee Lecture the future of the U.S.-South Korea alliance in the Indo-Pacific. Please welcome Derek Morgan, Executive Vice President of the Heritage Foundation. Hello, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. We are delighted to have you all uh, here this morning, and we are again honored to present the B.C. Lee Lecture. It's always a highlight for us every year we are thankful to be supported by a generous, generous endowment by the Samsung Group in honor of Samsung founder Byung Chu Lee. And uh, of course, there's a portrait of him right outside uh, this door here, uh, which, you can, which you can see. Mr. Lee was a true visionary. Uh, through his leadership, the Samsung Group contributed greatly both to the economic development and the well-being of the Korean people and to the development of mutually beneficial relations between the people of the Republic of Korea and the United States. The very first BC lecture was in 1995, and it featured uh, distinguished former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger as our keynote speaker. So these lectures have a, a long and a distinguished lineage. And while we're thinking about long and distinguished lineages, I think it's worth mentioning that 2023 is the 40th anniversary of the Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. It was established in 1983 to focus the attention of Washington on the United States economic and security interests in the dynamic Indo-Pacific region. Very visionary, particularly at that time. The importance of the Indo-Pacific region has only grown exponentially in recent years. And just this year, the United States and South Korea reaffirmed our bilateral diplomatic alliance and affirmation of the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-South Korean alliance, which was formed in the aftermath of the Korean War. The Korean War Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. includes the homage, quote, Our nation honors her sons and daughters who answered the call to defend a country they never knew and a people they never met. It is a fitting reminder that freedom is not free and it must be defended even when the cost is high. We are honored today to be joined by three strong advocates of strong partnerships in Asia, recognizing and welcoming America's role as a Pacific nation with incredibly strong, like-minded, and steadfast allies. Before I introduce our speakers, I'd like to recognize and give a warm welcome to some special guests in the audience. Uh, representatives of Samsung who are with us today, our sincere thanks to uh, Mark Lippert, who's former U.S. Ambassador to South Korea and currently Executive Vice President at Samsung Electronics and Jennifer Seta, Vice President and Head of Government Relations. Thank you both for being here. Distinguished members of Washington, D.C. Diplomatic Corps are here from many countries. Thank you for being here as well, uh, as well as uh, many of our programs. It's a relationship that we highly value. A delegation from North Korea Young Leaders Assembly is here. These are representing brave young men and women who have escaped from North Korea and are now champions of freedom and human rights. We also have a few members of our Asian Studies Center Advisory Council with us in the auditorium and online, uh, and we thank them for their continued advice and engagement on behalf of the Heritage Foundation's Asia work. 
And now a quick introduction for our speakers. His Excellency Ambassador Cho presented his credentials as Ambassador of the Republic of Korea to the United States just in April, but he's been here before as we were talking earlier. His 35 years experience in the Foreign Service, Ambassador Cho has dealt with a wide array of issues from political and security affairs to management and public diplomacy throughout his career and most recently served as first Vice Minister of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Thank you, Ambassador. Senator Bill Haggerty is currently serving his first term representing the great volunteer state of Tennessee. As a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he serves as a member of the Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific and International Cybersecurity Policy, among others. Prior to his election to the U.S. Senate, uh, Senator Haggerty served as the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, the world's third largest economy and one of America's closest allies in the region. And of course, before government service, he was a distinguished lifelong businessman, including living in the region. Representative Young Kim represents California's 40th district as one of the first Korean Americans to serve in Congress. She is a member of the House Financial Services and uh, Foreign Affairs Committee, the later of which she serves as the chair of the subcommittee on the Indo-Pacific. She also co-chairs the Congressional Study Group on Korea and the U.S. Republic of Korea Interparliamentary Exchange. So now I'm going to turn over the event to Bruce Klingner, my uh, Heritage Foundation colleague and senior research fellow. Uh, before joining Heritage 17 years ago, Bruce worked for 20 years for the Central Intelligence Agency and the Defense Intelligence Agency uh, with a focus on Korea. So please join me in welcoming everyone to the stage. Well, it is a real uh, pleasure for me to be involved in this uh, event. It is Heritage's preeminent event on Asia and the Indo-Pacific region, so I'm very honored to be a, a part of it. Um, as Mr. Morgan said, this is the 70th anniversary year of the creation of the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Uh, it's also the 70th anniversary later this month of the armistice, which ended the, the brutal war. Uh, and it's also a, in a less well-known anniversary. It is the 30th anniversary of when I started working on Korean issues. <laughs> um, and so I have now been working on Korea for literally almost half my life. Uh, and for those of you doing the math in the audience, yes, I'm, I'm quite old. Um, I've now been focusing on, on Korea for quite some time. It, it really became an immersive experience. Uh, because along the way, uh, my wife, my three children, and I all have uh, acquired uh, multiple black belts in Korean martial arts. So we, we try not to get in arguments uh, when we're at home. Uh, and, and like most longtime Korea watchers uh, in the U.S., focusing on Korea for so long and, and focusing on the people both in North and South Korea, it it's becomes much more than an analytic exercise. It, it becomes not uh, just a matter of the head, but really of, of the heart. And so for many of us, we've traveled there more times than we can count. Uh, we have many long and deep friendships with Koreans. We celebrate the miracle on the Han River, and we also remain vigilant uh, against the ever-growing threat from the North. And our hearts ache for the, the cruel conditions that the North Korean people endure. And we all hope that and yearn for the day that we can all have a united Korea. We can walk across what used to be the demilitarized zone. Um, and as a result of that, we, we, the Korea watchers, we inevitably become uh, very strong advocates for the bilateral relationship and fierce defenders 
of the Alliance. And today I'm very honored to be joined by three very special guests who have a long involvement in Asia and are strong advocates of America's strong relationships with our critically important allies in Northeast Asia. Um, Ambassador Cho, I've, I've known you for quite some time. I have uh, at least four business cards from you uh, over the years, uh, and I don't have all of them, and I need to get your new one, but a Deputy Secretary to the President for National Security Strategy, DCM, Special Advisor to the Minister, and Ambassador Director General, North Korea Nuclear Affairs Bureau. And I, uh, I understand you were uh, stationed at the embassy here on the 50th anniversary Right. of the alliance, uh, and also DCM during the 60th, and then we now have you here for the 70th. So we look forward to inviting you back to Heritage 10 years from now uh, to celebrate the 80th when you are either foreign minister or president of Korea. <laughs> so th thank you very much for being here. Uh, Representative Kim, I only have one business card from you, but it's from 2007. Uh, so again, we've known each other for, for quite some time. It was when you were the district representative and director of Asian Community Affairs for, for Congressman Ed Royce. So I uh, look forward to, again, having you here, and, and thank you for being here. Uh, Senator Haggerty, I don't have a business card for you yet. <laughs> Uh, but I'm hoping today is, is the beginning of, of a long-time uh, relationship and, and anything that I or the Heritage Foundation can do for you uh, in your support on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We, we look forward to that. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, and just to point out, uh, Senator Haggerty has a pressing engagement and will have to leave us uh, at 11 o'clock. So uh, just to, it's not in response to a question that I asked that he's leaving, but uh, he does have a very pressing um, schedule this, this day. Um, so I want to start uh, sort of very broadly a 30,000-foot level question, uh, and I'll start with Ambassador Cho to kind of get us started. Um, President Yun has initiated very different uh, policies from his predecessor, and only two weeks after his inauguration, he hosted President Biden uh, for a meeting in Korea, and then we had a very successful summit uh, just a few months ago in April. So uh, how do you see the overall trajectory of the relationship um, and, and what do you see uh, as the future agenda topics? Well, Bruce, um, first of all, thank you for inviting me today. And I'm honored to join uh, many of our uh, participants here, in particular with the honorable two uh, members of the Congress, Senator Haggerty and Representative Young Kim. And I also would uh, like to uh, recognize a group of uh, young leaders from North Korea. Uh, I think I'm going to have a meeting this afternoon at the, at the embassy. Uh, when it comes to the uh, bilateral ROK-U.S. relations, I think I should uh, start with the state visit uh, in late April, which was a huge success, as you have witnessed. Well, uh, I think um, the President Yoon's visit to uh, Washington, I believe, is open a new chapter of a 70-year-old alliance into a, uh, a brighter and more brilliant future another 70 years. Uh, they've achieved a lot, but uh, I'd like to mention just three key takeaways from the visit. Number one, we have upgraded our security alliance into a new level by adopting Washington Declaration. So uh, we, we both presidents agreed to strengthen the extended deterrence in response to North Korea's growing uh, threat of uh, nuclear and missile capabilities. 
So adoption of the Washington Declaration is very significant development. I think it's the evolution of the Mutual Defense Treaty, which was signed in 1953. And number two, they have agreed to expand um, the alliance from the security-related uh, alliance to uh, another level of uh, wide scope of uh, uh, aspect, including uh, economic security and cutting-edge technology and um, other areas. Uh, for instance, uh, we have agreed to expand our cooperation in uh, uh, cyberspace and also uh, space cooperation. So uh, the, one of the uh, achievements is to, to uh, agreement on establishment of uh, uh, next generation of uh, critical and emerging technologies dialogue, which will be chaired by the national security advisors of two countries, which is a significant development. And number three, well, I think it probably is the most important one. And we have uh, demonstrated that the, our alliance is deeply rooted and based on the shared value of freedom, democracy, and rule of law, and human right. I think uh, that was uh, clearly demonstrated when he uh, made a speech at the joint session of the Congress and received the sensational reaction by the members of the Congress. And also, in that context, uh, we are going to expand our people-to-people -people exchange, in particular for the younger generation, which will be the foundation of future alliance uh, for coming decade. So that is the, um, the overall assessment of the state visit. And uh, probably in the future topics, I believe the alliance is going global. So mm. not only from the, uh, beyond the Korean Peninsula and beyond East Asia, uh, the alliance will be uh, playing a major role in expanding its cooperation in many aspects of uh, global issues. So there will be uh, uh, some multilateral cooperation from uh, beginning from the trilateral cooperation involving Korea, U.S., and Japan, and another minilateral kind of uh, cooperation in Asia-Pacific. And probably there will be more cooperation in the context of NATO. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we are making every effort to... to provide assistance to Ukraine as well in close coordination of the United, United States. So uh, overall, I think that the future of the alliance is, uh, has never been brighter. So I'm, I'm happy and I'm honored to uh, make some contribution to the strengthening of our alliance. Thank you. Let me stop here. Right. Have, uh, Thank you. Um, Senator Haggerty, you, you've had a, a unique viewpoint of, of looking at America's two important alliances in Northeast Asia, not only from your service on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but your previous tenure as the ambassador to Japan. Uh, so as Ambassador Cho has pointed out, the, 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 the outlook right now is quite rosy, not only with, with Korea, but also with Japan. What is your views right now of the, the overall relationship uh, with both Korea and with Japan from Washington? Well, uh, Bruce, before, and I'll get you my business card. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Uh, before I start, though, I would just like to say what an honor it is to be here with you and be hosted here at Heritage Foundation. Ambassador Cho, such an important relationship. My congratulations to you. What an amazing success to deliver a state visit uh, so early in your <laughs> career here, uh, <laughs> coming back as ambassador. I know what an incredible task that is. Uh, but it is a wonderful honor, too, so my congratulations to you. Uh, you come at a very critical time in U.S.-Korea relations, so I look forward to working with you more 
and welcome. Uh, Representative Kim, it's so good to see you again. You. Uh, your contributions to this relationship are deep and, and reach very, very far. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your leadership. Look forward to working with you uh, on a continuous basis. I was honored to be in um, the House of Representatives when the when President Yoon was there to to speak to us as a delegation. He had a great uh, great admiration for you there. It was very obvious and palpable in the room. So thank you for your leadership. Uh, back to how I see things right now. Um, I think that the challenges before our alliance could not be greater. The ambassador touched on the the, the positive aspects of our alliance between the United States and South Korea, and I'll add Japan to that mix on a trilateral basis. But the challenges that we see together are significant, whether it be a more belligerent North Korea or a China that in some ways facilitates North Korea's behavior and in other ways uh, continues to exercise extraordinarily predatory practices whether it be predatory economic practices, by that I mean stealing our intellectual property, forcing technology transfer, subsidizing industries, competing unfairly in terms of market access. Um, we have seen you know, dramatic predatory behavior on a military basis, too. Uh, the South China Sea now has artificial islands that have been established there by the Chinese Communist Party. I remember vividly uh, President Xi coming here, standing in the Rose Garden next to President Obama back about 2015, saying that he had no intention to militarize those islands. Mm. If you look at it today, and again, I would encourage you to Google Fiery Cross Reef if you have not. These islands are militarized, about half a dozen of them, by the way, in one of the busiest sea lanes in the world. This sort of predatory posture is unacceptable, yet China persists in it. Cybersecurity a great challenge. I serve on the committee to, to address that from a number of angles. But we've seen China invade our sovereignty with a spy balloon. They invade our sovereignty every day, though, with their cyber threats and their cyber attacks and the theft of intellectual property that is continuous. Moving to Cuba, 100 miles off our shore. Again, another aggressive position that we're seeing right here at home. But I want to make it clear that our allies in South Korea, our allies in Japan, deal with this every day. And when I served as United States Ambassador to Japan, I spent a tremendous amount of time on the trilateral relationship, initially with, with uh, Vince Brooks, who was running our military presence there, and then later with General Abrams. But importantly, um, meeting with officials in South Korea uh, when President Moon was in office, spending time with Foreign Minister Kang, spending time uh, with the National Security Advisor Chung. Uh, at the time, he eventually took over the Foreign Minister's job there. Um, and what I've seen... This new administration, President Yoon, is a move much closer, I think, in appreciation of the deep need for a strong security alliance. And I, again, look very, for, very much look forward to working with you, Ambassador, to, to deepening those relations. It could not come at a more critical time. I'll say this, too. Um, for, for, for those of you that are here from North Korea, could you raise your hand? <clears throat> I have a deep respect and admiration for what you've been through. Um, I remember vividly the day that Ji Sung-ho held his crutch in the air at the United States State of the Union address. Uh, that happened shortly after my family met with him and a group of your colleagues. And that happened because we wanted to express our support and our appreciation and our admiration for the freedom that you fought so hard <clears throat> to address. And the relationship that my family, my children, have built with some of you has made a big mark on our lives.
and we want to be there to continue to support you as you become part of society again. And as you, I hope, make very clear uh, what the conditions are like in North Korea. Mm. I think your, your voices carry a very important message. So thank you. You have my ultimate respect. Thank you, sir. Um, as a follow-on, it seems one of the most tangible uh, signals of deterrence uh, and reassurance, uh, both to North Korea and South Korea, uh, are the resumption last year of the large-scale U.S.-South Korean bilateral military exercises, as well as the resumption of trilateral exercises uh, along with Japan. Um, how important do you see that development as a signal, not only to our opponents, but to our allies? Mm -hmm. And are there additional steps you think the U.S. should take to uh, really show our commitment to the defense of our allies to deter actions, not only by North Korea, but also from China? Bruce, given your background, I'm not surprised you asked this question. <laughs> I think it's terribly important. Um, the joint exercises that we're talking about does invite more belligerent behavior from North Korea. But I'll accept that because the impact of those joint exercises is significant. I've seen it with my own eyes. And I've seen our progress in terms of capability and interoperability when we do have joint exercises, when our teams work together. Because of a number of security issues, it's very hard for our uh, information systems to directly link. Mm. So it's terribly important that our human relations link directly, that we obtain the benefit of working together, of developing that sort of cadence that all, all of us understand. So I'm incredibly supportive of more joint exercises, not only to send an important message to North Korea, to the CCP, and to others around the world about the strength of our alliance, but because it delivers very real and very tangible benefits to our own capability. If you look at what's happening in Japan right now, they are going to take a significant increase in their defense budget. They're going to go from 1% to 2% of their GDP expenditures on defense over the next five years. I applaud that. Listen, when Prime Minister Abe was the prime minister, he wanted to do this. We talked about this on a number of occasions. What's happened uh, with China's aggression, particularly in the wake of the fall of Afghanistan and the, uh, the, the behavior of Russia entering Ukraine and the increased pressure now that the CCP is putting on Taiwan, Japanese public opinion has shifted dramatically. And what Prime Minister Abe could not achieve, uh, Prime Minister Kishida is able to achieve because Public sentiment has moved. Uh, Komieto, which is the uh, junior partner, if you will, of the coalition that, that works together with the LDP in Japan, uh, a pacifist um, group, uh, has now conceded that we do need to step up. We need to see this greater presence. But every time I meet with my colleagues, I remind them that we've got to focus on interoperability and on our lethality, not just on spending more money, but on competence. And these sort of exercises go directly to that point. Thank you very much. I uh, I, I would like to keep you for the next hour or more to, to answer questions, but I want to be mindful of your time and, and your very busy schedule. And I, I think I'm getting the signal from your staffers that, oh, okay, I will sneak one more question in. <laughs> you can blame them if you're late. Not <laughs> Got it, Bruce. Um, another one is, is last year you introduced legislation to impose additional sanctions on North Korea, uh, particularly their ability to generate revenue uh, to fund its unlawful uh, WMD programs. A lot of that is from cyber activity, uh, which we're all 
very aware of North Korea's nuclear weapons and their missiles. The cyber capabilities, uh, I think, are much less uh, understood or appreciated as the threat that they are. What additional sanctions or actions do you think the U.S. should be taking against North Korea in conjunction with our allies as well as the United Nations? First, I'll say this. We need to enforce existing sanctions very, very aggressively. Uh, we worked extraordinarily hard when I served as U.S. ambassador to Japan and in that region to block ship-to-ship -ship transfers uh, of coal to the CCP. Um, we worked very hard to stop the proliferation of North Korean workers going into other countries to generate hard currency and send it back, again, to fund the programs. One of the things, though, that was a persistent weakness and a persistent issue was cybercrime by, by North Koreans. Lazarus and others are uh, very, very effective, and they are you know, finding ways to get around our systems, around our security, and again, fund the development of North Korea's illicit nuclear weapon program. So we need to use every tactic and every angle that we can to shut off the resources, the financial resources that they're able to retain, that, that they're able to obtain. Uh, and I think the best way for us to do, the, to do this is to work as closely as we possibly can with our allies in South Korea, with our allies around the region and our allies around the globe, to share best practices with respect to cybersecurity and to impose even greater sanctions and, again, enforce those that we have and look for opportunities to impose more to shut off the flow of financial resources that's enabling North Korea to continue its belligerent behavior. Right. And, and I know there have been not only a, a recent agreement between Washington and Seoul on cyber, uh, but also a lot of new meetings uh, of new groups to, to try to better implement that. Um, and we've seen some estimates that uh, North Korea is generating a, a billion dollars a year uh, from cybercrime, mm -hmm. which is much more efficient than their previous counterfeiting and, and other crimes. And I think any Korea watcher uh, has been uh, hacked or attempted to be hacked numerous times. And we know they, they target members of Congress uh, along with the, the government and, and banks. So uh, yeah, as, you, as you point out, there's the sanctions we have in the U.S. lawful law enforcement measures are very robust, mm -hmm. but through successive administrations, they have not been fully implemented, uh, particularly, I think, with, with China. There are Chinese banks and businesses. Mm -hmm. We seem to have a hesitancy. They're enabling and facilitating this, exactly. Right. And, and so as much as we want to impose new U.N. resolutions or U.S. legislation, there's... I think, as you point out, is a greater impetus in enforcing the laws that we already have on the books, but for some reason have been hesitant to, to fully enforce, not only against North Korea, but I think particularly Chinese banks and businesses. I couldn't agree more, Bruce. Right. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, sir. And, and thank you for having me today. Thanks to all of you. Please, please join me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Representative Kim, thank you for your, your patience. Um, you know, we, we've already talked or made mention of President Yun's speech to Congress, and, and I first read it and thought it was masterful, and then I watched the video and, and was even more struck. But it, it must have been particularly uh, moving while seeing it in person, uh, and as he called out to you particularly. So kind of what were your impressions not only of that speech, uh, but also yours and perhaps overall Congress view of, of the relationship right now? Well, first of all, 
Thank you for inviting me, and it's really an uh, honor to be here in the same room with the distinguished uh, Ambassador Cho and Senator Haggerty. Uh, thank you for uh, being here, everyone in the room, and I especially also want to echo and welcome the delegation from uh, North Korea who have experienced some of the unimaginable things, uh, those of us who live out here. But uh, I look forward to also meeting you and welcoming you and having a dialogue later today. Um, I was very glad to be able to welcome President Yoon to Washington and also serve on the uh, escort committee to mm -hmm. bring him to the House floor uh, to listen to his address to the joint sessions. Um, that visit was very, very timely. It couldn't have come at a better time because, as Ambassador Cho mentioned, we are now celebrating the 70th uh, in our alliance of our U.S. Rock Alliance. This is very, very meaningful. Uh, when I was named the Indo-Pacific Subcommittee early this year, and I learned that President Yoon is planning a trip to the United States, I immediately went to uh, Chairman McCall and said, we need to make sure President Yoon can speak at joint sessions. And we encouraged uh, both of us to contact the speaker to extend the official invitation for President Yoon. And I'm so glad that on our recent uh, CODEL to South Korea, well, to Asia, including mm -hmm. Japan and South Korea, when we landed there, we got the notice that the speaker has allowed us to officially extend the invitation to President Yoon. And we were at the uh, White House uh, when the president was welcoming us. We're having conversation. And for me, as an immigrant from South Korea who was born in the aftermath of the Korean War, for me to be in that position at that very historical time and asking the president to come to the United States and asking him, if you come to Washington and deliver at joint sessions, what would be the key points that you would like to talk about? And uh, I knew at the time that he said he will just expand on the Indo-Pacific strategy that South Korea has uh, released. And I said it couldn't have been such a timely issue because it's no coincidence that the United States has an Indo-Pacific strategy. South Korea has Indo-Pacific strategy. This is a very, very important time because, again, U.S. Rock Alliance was based on shared values, as was talked about, on uh, human rights, democracy, freedom, rule of law, which President Yoon reiterated during his speech and also during all of the meetings, even at the White House with President Biden. Uh, so that was uh, very significant. And uh, over the past year, as you know, President Yoon has been such a willing ally. And he sent a very strong and clear message to that United uh, Republic of Korea stands willing and ready to work with the United States and other allies to ensure that the Indo-Pacific remains free and open. And so the timing of uh, strengthening our alliance couldn't have been at you know, critical time. And as you ask, uh, like, what was going through my mind as I was watching the president speak, you know, I was talking about because the night before he came to Congress, uh, he was at the state dinner. And I had just left the state dinner around 10 p.m. wearing my beautiful hanbok because <laughs> I had to go back to my financial services committee uh, markup 
And I just went in there and stand, uh, stayed in the room for another hour and a half until we finished our business, wearing humble. This was a way that we, I mean, I said, oh my God, how many times do you see a member of Congress wearing humble and doing the business? But those were some of the things that went through mine. And then I'm hearing, as, right after I left, President Yoon has sang the American Pie. I mean, okay. <laughs> the, the confidence that President Nguyen ex, uh, exhibited and, you know, the, the conversation that he's mm -hmm. held and the leadership that is exhibited, I think this really goes to show you how far South Korea has come. We talked about the, the, the miracle of Han River. Every time I go back to Korea, and I get to travel and, you know, like uh, pass through Han River. I talk about uh, the, the before and after Korean War. And during the, I believe, the um, either 60th or previous uh, the, uh, alliance of a U.S. rock alliance, South Korean government has commissioned to produce a his historical pictorial book. Korea before and after. So you see all the photos before Korean War were black and white. All the photos after Korean War is obviously in color to signify the development and how far Korea has come. And so I use that to, whenever I meet with the veterans, especially those American War veterans of the Korean War, uh, throughout my work in the district, I always present them with a book, and they are in tears. And this is what I was thinking about when I was listening to President Yoon's speech. And also, the day before, of course, you know, uh, Embassy hosted a special event to honor three American War veterans of the Korean War mm -hmm. with the highest Taeguk medal of the, I think it was the Order of Military of Merit, and when I saw that, for someone who has done numerous times of rep you know, representing our country, meaning United States, my home, adopted home, and you know, recognizing the veterans who have served uh, valiantly to provide my homeland the freedom that we enjoy today and to protect the people they never knew until they came to Korea because it was the right thing to do. They were called to serve, they didn't hesitate and that's why I'm here today. And who would have thought 50 some years later, this young girl who immigrated from South Korea would be in the same room welcoming South Korea president to the house floor and be able to serve with you like this as a chairwoman of the Indo-Pacific. So there are a lot of things that went on. Uh, but again, we talked about the Washington Declaration. I think that was really a significant step in the right direction. It also is a recognition of South Korea's willingness to work very closely with the United States and other allies and uh, partners in the Indo-Pacific to be really a, a step up and become not only the economic partner that it already is, but very strong security partner. Mm -hmm. And so that I thought that was really good because again, uh, Washington Declaration will now allow the uh, the you know, rock 
uh, Republic of Korea to uh, you know participate more in planning and doing the uh, exercises with the American nuclear assets. And it, the Washington Declaration would also allow the deployment of the nuclear armed submarines to the region. So this was a much needed reassurance to uh, you know. America providing South Korea the extended uh, the deterrence and sent a very, very strong <laughs> message to Kim Jong-un that stop your nuclear uh, ambition. If you do, there will be countermeasure, there will be a consequence because South Korea is ramping up, working very closely, not only with the United States, but again, we're not going to tolerate those uh, very malign behaviors. So all in all, I was very teary-eyed. Mm. Uh, this was very, very uh, emotional for me personally. And as you saw, when President Yoon uh, named some of the uh, South Korean government's uh, foreign direct investment in some of uh, the members states, you saw Chairman McCall standing up and cheering, and we were doing high fives on the House floor. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that we have come a long way. And the relationship between U.S. and South Korea have been better. It was already very strong, but I think President Yoon's uh, April visit really solidified where we stand and where we're going in the future. Uh, but obviously, there is a lot more I want to say, but especially because we have in the audience uh, the North Korean defectors, I want to tell you that uh, my uh, policy priorities in the Indo-Pacific and as a member who serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, human rights will be one of the cr uh, critical uh, policy uh, areas for me to serve on. And even as long time ago when I was working as a congressional staff, this was a very important issue for me uh, with uh, you know, North Korean defectors and refugees that I came across meeting very, very closely over the years. Um, I, will keep, I will make sure that, uh, you know, working closely with the Biden administration, that we kept the North Korea's human rights on the front burner and that does not let it go sideways and, uh, you know, be forgotten. Well, thank you for all those uh, <laughs> thoughts of the, the, your, your emotional feelings when uh, seeing that, the speech. That was uh, very wonderful. By the um, way, you, you missed the moment the music died, right? Oh. <laughs> um, continuing on, on yeah. uh, North Korea, uh, Ambassador Cho, uh, President Yun has returned human rights to, to Seoul's policy toward Pyongyang. Uh, in a break from his predecessor, he's now criticized Pyongyang's human rights violations. He filled the envoy position for human rights. Uh, he co-sponsored, or Seoul co-sponsored the North Korean human rights right. uh, resolution. And, and during the April summit, uh, First Lady Kim met with Cindy Warmbier, the, the mother of Otto Warmbier. Um, what steps additional steps do you see that Seoul could take in conjunction with Washington and others to try to improve the human rights conditions in North Korea? Well, um, we, you remember that when President uh, uh, took oath as a new president of Republic of Korea, he underlined the importance of principles he laid out. It was the uh, freedom, democracy, human rights, and rule of law. So human rights situation in North Korea, I think, uh, will be always the priority agenda for his foreign policy. So this year, 
uh, we marked the 75th anniversary of the adoption of the Universal Declaration of the Human Rights, and also the 10th anniversary of the establishment of COI, the UN COI, UN Commission of Inquiry on North Korean Human Rights Situation. So we believe this is the right time to raise the global awareness of North Korean human rights problem. And in that context, I think Korean government reappointed the Ambassador for International Cooperation on North Korean Human Rights, uh, Professor Lee Shinwa. And we, as you said, we have joined as co-sponsor the uh, UN resolutions on North Korean human rights, not only UNJ, but also UN Human Rights Councils. And also for the first time recently, the Korean government released the comprehensive report on North Korean human rights situation. Mm-hmm. The English version of the report will be uh, released shortly. Will be will be on your desk very soon. Mm-hmm. And uh, all in all, I think, uh, and also he, um, President Yoon, reiterated that the uh, raising the global awareness of human rights situation in the international community is indeed consistent with the national interest of the Republic of Korea. Because um, while North Korea has continued to, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, grow its uh, nuclear and missile capabilities, but um, uh, raising this issue of, the issue of human rights, North Korean human rights situation, international community, will be a kind of another kind of deterrence against North Korea's bad behavior and their continued provocation. So uh, we are going to step up our effort. Uh, to uh, uh, solidify the international community's um, effort uh, to work together on North Korean human rights. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm personally, uh, my parents from both sides, they were born in North Korea, the Hwangye province, and they fled during the, uh, before, just before the Korean War. Mm-hmm. So I have um, no idea. I think they probably have some uh, family left there, but we have no idea whether they are still alive or not. So I think as ambassador to the United States, the North Korean human rights will be my priority agenda during my term to raise this issue and to, to work together with the American friends uh, to this end. Well, thank you. Um, Representative Kim, the, we've seen reporting how the, the economic and the food situation in North Korea is deteriorating. And the metric we always use, is it better or worse than the, the great famine of the, of the 1990s? But in any case, we know the situation is, is quite poor for a number of reasons, including its self-imposed COVID restrictions on, on trade, even cutting off uh, government-sponsored smuggling. Um, if Pyongyang were to loosen the, their COVID restrictions on travel, on imports, should the U.S. offer food and humanitarian and, and medical assistance, or should there be um, some kind of conditions on that, as well as uh, allowing aid workers to go in? There's been restrictions after uh, the Otto Warmbier situation. How, how do you see the what we should do regarding the, regarding the humanitarian situation? I'd like to address that, but also I want to uh, talk, you know, follow up on what Ambassador Cho said, too. But uh, first of all, with regard to uh, providing food and uh, medicine and other type of humanitarian support to North Korea, I would welcome that. And uh, uh, because, you know, but I'm, I'm also uh, very concerned about the, the safety of any uh, 
aid workers that we will be sending to North Korea. As you know, uh, I have to remind you that the United States has offered humanitarian assistance um, many times. And I know South Korea also offered Indeed. to provide COVID-19 vaccines, but it was Kim Jong-un who refused to accept those to the perils of its own people. Uh, so even if Pyongyang loosens its COVID-19 restrictions, I'm not sure if Kim Jong-un is ready to accept our offers, very generous offer from United States, South Korea, and other, uh, you know, uh, allies in the, uh, in the area. So again, uh, I have introduced a legislation, North Korea Human Rights uh, Reauthorization Act, in which we talk about providing the uh, humanitarian assistance. Uh, among other things. And so we will uh, try to work through that process and uh, work with our uh, agencies like USAID and other, uh, you know, aid workers, humanitarian supporters that has already been doing it. So hopefully maybe we can use that venue. But I also want to uh, address the human rights issues. Again, we know how awful and uh, atrocious it is, but nobody knows since uh, COVID uh, lockdown, there have not been any movement going back and forth. Even the, the North Korean defectors who had looked for the opportunity to uh, cross that uh, you know, river and find some safe haven in China before they finally make their way into South Korea or other places. We just don't know what's going on. We don't know how many people have been starved to death. We just don't know. Um, so late, uh, most recently, BBC had a series of documents about those uh, North Koreans uh, starving to death. And I was uh, able to offer my thoughts on that. This is really a welcome a documentary that BBC was doing, and I was able to talk about the times when I was working on that issue, uh, how we need to keep on the pressure uh, as an international community to uh, North Korea that any uh, regime, any country that violates human rights the way that Kim Jong-un does and his previous father, Kim Jong-il, grandfather, you know, Kim Il-sung. I mean, again, we need to bring that to the front burner and keep talking about it. Look, Biden administration, if I may just evaluate the uh, Biden administration's current, uh, you know, two years in office, he came into the office, uh, you know, uh, emphasizing his commitment to promote human rights around the globe. Uh, but there has been a lot of talk, less action, or should I say action that hasn't come fast enough I can point to like three areas. Like it was just December of last year when uh, we finally saw a new wave of U.S. sanctions on individuals or groups that are involved in the human rights violation in North Korea. This was the first time since President Biden came into office. Mm -hmm. And it was more than a year or almost a year when uh, we saw a nominee for the U.S. ambassadorship to South Korea. That, again, was, uh, in a way, overdue. And lastly, it was only recently when President Biden nominated a special envoy for North Korea human rights. This is, again, two years into his office. Um, so these positions that have been left unfilled have really undermined mm -hmm. our efforts 
to address the human rights uh, abroad and globally. So that's why I am you know, really serious about making sure that human rights, not just on North Korea issues, but you know, how China is uh, treating its own people, and especially in the Uyghur uh, region. And we saw what happened with Taiwan, Hong Kong. We have to speak out, and now we have to work closely, bring a unified voice to let those authoritarian dictators know that we are not going to tolerate this anymore. Thank you. And, and just to point out on the humanitarian situation or, or providing aid, um, despite a lot of misperceptions, there are no sanctions or restrictions either in U.S. legislation or U.N. resolutions against the provision of humanitarian assistance, food or, or medical aid. There's a, oftentimes people feel that the U.S. has sanctioned those. And that's one of the reasons for uh, the conditions of, of the North Korean right. people. So, Bruce, if I may just add one more point. Well, we certainly welcome the nomination of Ms. Julie Turner as um, yeah. ambassador for Senate, North Korea uh, Human Rights from the United States. So if she is confirmed by the Senate, well, Senator Hager is not here. <laughs> but, uh, we look forward to working very hard together with her. So now we have um, ladies from Korea, the Professor Yishinwa, the Korean ambassador for North Korean Human Rights. And if Julie Turner is confirmed, uh, she, she will be representing the United States. And we have a special rapporteur of the UN, uh, Ms. Salmon, on North Korean human rights. Now we have uh, Young Kim from okay. the Congress. So we will have four ladies working closely for the noble cause of human rights situation in North Korea. I love it. There is a saying that women are consensus builders, women are problem solvers. <laughs> now, I really look forward to also uh, seeing uh, Ms. Julie Turner being confirmed by the Senate, hopefully soon. And I look forward to working with her on promoting all these uh, human rights issues. Wonderful. Uh, I want to go back to the extended deterrence and the Washington Declaration, which we, we've discussed. Mm -hmm. um, Ambassador Cho, during my trips to Korea in December and January, um, I had sort of a sense of a growing crisis uh, on, on the issue of uh, the U.S. extended deterrence guarantee. There seemed to be a great, a much greater advocacy by advocates in South Korea for an indigenous nuclear weapon, uh, even more than return of U.S. tactical nuclear weapons to the peninsula. Um, it had moved from sort of fringe discussion to very mainstream. Uh, and then by April, there was sort of this very yep. huge reversal um, we had the very successful summit. We had the Washington Declaration, the creation of the Nuclear Consultative Group, which will have its first meeting uh, very soon this month. D do you see that the uh, Republic of Korea is now reassured by those initiatives, the tabletop exercises, et cetera? Or is the jury still out on the, the Nuclear Consultative Group and the, the overall issue um, and that perhaps after another North Korean provocation that the issue will come back to the forefront? Well, thank you for asking that question. But actually, first of all, the Washington Declaration, the adopted by the two presidents during the state visit, was a very unique and uh, milestone agreement between the two countries. I would say it is an upgraded version of the Mutual Defense Treaty, which was signed in 1953. As uh, two presidents uh, agreed at the joint statement, the, any kind of North Korea's nuclear attack will be uh, faced with immediate overwhelm, 
and decisive response by the United States, including the nuclear asset. And also, President Biden himself uh, publicly mentioned that um, uh, and in that case, it will lead to the end of the North Korean regime. That's a very powerful statement. And the first round of nuclear consultative group, which you mentioned, will be held in Seoul next week and uh, will be chaired by the senior officials of both National Security Council. And they will be engaged in very serious discussions on, I think, information sharing and joint planning and execution of the use of nuclear, U.S. nuclear asset in case of any contingency on the Korean Peninsula. Well, I think for the time being, that we believe is the best option for us to deal with North Korea's nuclear threat. And as President Yoon mentioned publicly, uh, we are going to adhere to NPT regime uh, while we're going to strengthen our extended deterrence based on nuclear asset. Well, that kind of, uh, kind of debate and controversy over a possible indigenous nuclear program, well, it could be um, uh, at the end of uh, experts and uh, politicians and journalists. But as far as the government is concerned, our position is very clear. That is the best way for us now. Thank you. Uh, Representative Kim, there, sort of from a U.S. viewpoint, we might wonder, what more can we do? We have our... Uh, our forces there, we have our treaty, we have our commitments, et cetera. But do you think there are additional steps that, that the U.S. can do to better deter North Korea, better reassure uh, South Korea, and, and not only on the nuclear component of the overall extended deterrence, um, but are there also steps that we can take with, with the Republic of Korea on their own conventional forces to enhance the, the deterrence as well as the reassurance aspect? I think we need to assure uh, that the United States and its allies work more close, you know, work more closely so that we can build the um, the, uh, the the security assurance and uh, counter the uh, aggression that we see from both uh, China and North Korea collectively. Because, uh, you know, obviously we also, as uh, Senator Hegarty mentioned before he left, I think we need to engage more uh, in the uh, multi-nation exercises like RIMPAC. Uh, we've seen that. But also, we need to also uh, do more trilateral exercises between U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Uh, during my uh, you know, trip to South uh, Japan in April, I, uh, we were on the, um, the Seventh Fleet and saw the, uh, the exercises and how our multinations come together to, uh, you know, plan and operate together. And it was, the message was very clear that they're all doing this with one common thread in mind, and that's China. So we need to be doing more there. Uh, and I think that really uh, ensures uh, the greater interoperability and sense of very, very strong message that we are presenting a unified front against the aggression from China and North Korea at the same time. Thank you. Well, I have, I have several pages of questions here, so it shouldn't take more than about two or three more hours. So, um, but I, we are at, at our scheduled uh, end time, and I, I want to be very mindful of your yeah. very busy schedule. So, uh, I hope we can perhaps have you back and, and earlier than in 10 years from now. Uh, so please join me in thanking our, our two 